0: We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 on this Sunday before Christmas, and we're going to look at snapshots of royalty. This is a very intricate and complicated chapter, but I think looking at it as a whole will provide us an understanding of what Matthew is presenting to us in in more of a holistic fashion to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in contrast to the other royalty presented In this chapter, I think the best thing for us to do to get our minds around this is to read it. So let me read chapter two and just follow along. Try to listen to it with freshness as if this might have been the first time you'd ever read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He said to Bethlehem, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, and he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what happened, spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream... He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Christmas time means Christmas carols, Christmas songs. It's a sweet time for every believer. It's a time probably in the the church calendar when we sing with a renewed sense of vigor like no other time in the year but it's easy to be caught up in some inaccurate legends that have snuck their way into songs perpetuated in christmas carols and even immortalized in our manger scenes our nativity sets for example we believe that there was a star the night jesus was born spoiler alert the star was not there the night jesus was born No indication that there was any star that hovered over the manger the night that Jesus was born. On the contrary, when the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds watching in their flocks by night, they were told not to look for a star, but rather to look for this, Luke 2.12, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That was their sign, not a star. Star was not given to the shepherds, but to the magi, as we'll see in a minute, who appeared to be visiting Jesus sometime later? Another legend that we sing about that has snuck its way into our nativity scenes: that there were three wise men. The song we sang earlier this morning, "We Three Kings," uh, there's uh, they're, they're also called wise men. They they weren't kings per se. Nowhere does the narrative mention that there were three of them; only that there were three gifts. And so the the idea has been there were three gifts. They each had a gift and that was where we get the idea of three. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Also that there was, there was no room for them in the inn. We tend to believe the legend that Joseph and his wife Mary, who was on the verge of giving birth, were cruelly turned away by the innkeeper who showed them no compassion. But there's a problem with that. No innkeeper or no inn is ever mentioned in the Christmas narrative. In fact, it's possible there was no In at all, that they were staying in a house of a relative. It just simply says a place to stay, not an inn. Also, we have that Jesus was born in a barn or a stable. The legend goes that since Joseph could not find a place to stay, he must have been forced to stay in a barn. Almost every nativity set sets it up like that. But the text doesn't say that he was born in a barn. It only says that Mary laid him in a feeding trough, a manger, which were used in a variety of ways in the ancient Near East. It was quite common for mangers to be kept in a main room of a village house during this time period. Why? Because animals were often just a few feet away in an adjacent room or in caves or overhangs close to the house. Michael Kruger says this, the New Testament scholar, it seems likely then that Mary gave birth to Jesus while they were staying at the home of Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem, but the room in which they stayed, likely a tight guest room or a hastily added chamber, could not accommodate a birth, so Mary had to give birth in a larger family room and lay Jesus in a nearby manger, end quote. Maybe, but that's speculation as well. I won't belabor this, we often think that Jesus was born on December 25th. Some people have a habit of singing happy birthday to Jesus on that day, and you're welcome to do that, but he was likely born in the spring when you put all the, the dating together. And then we also, we, we, three times this morning we talk about, we sang about the fact that the angels sang at the birth of Christ, but they didn't sing. They just talked. Hark the Herald Angels Said is not very melodic, and it doesn't rhyme with king, so maybe we should just keep singing that, but there's only two times the angels are ever said to sing, and that's at the creation and at the consummation. They said these things. The angels sang at the announcement of Christ's birth. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. They left, the heavenly ghost was pra- hosts were praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Among men with whom he is well, placed please don't misunderstand. And don't go throw your manger scene in the trash. <laughs> and you don't have to make any adjustments. I remember uh, talking about this a few years ago, and we went over to someone's house and they said, "Pastor Rick, I want to show you something. Here's our manger set. I said, "Great." And they said, "Look over there. We have the wise men on the other side of the room, because there's taking them a long time to go there. <laughs> that makes you feel better. Have at it. But it's not necessary. It really isn't. Nor do I want us to go edit all of the Christmas carols. I'm happy to sing. Hark the herald angels sing. We just need to make sure that we're viewing Christ's birth biblically. And not through mythology and not through legend. And with that, we turn to a trusted source on this event. And that's Matthew for an understanding of the coming of King Jesus, let's break this chapter down very simply, and we're going to go very, very fast and very high altitude to get as much as we can out of this chapter in our preparation for celebrating the Lord's birth, and see three snapshots of royalty in this Christmas story, three snapshots of royalty in the Christmas story. The first is kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, description of royalty. It's the kings in quotation mark from the east. And I put them in quotation marks because they weren't kings. They were wise men, which is a better description of them. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and that's an important, significant marker. This is not at the time. This is sometime afterwards. We'll see that specifically in a moment. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, wise men, not kings, magi, wise men from the east, arrived in Jerusalem saying, stop right there, the visit of the Magi to the Christ child is one of the most familiar parts of the Christmas narrative and story. However, the average conception of who these wise men were and what they brought and how they came and what they did when they got there has been unfortunately marred by many Christmas carols and manger sets. Truly amazing how these misunderstandings have leaked into our thinking First of all, we, we think there were three in number. We three kings of Orient are, well, we don't know that there were three. There may have been three. There may have been two. There may have been 30. We, we don't know. We just know that there were three gifts, and that's how the legend of three, uh, three kings came. Secondly, that they were kings. We three kings. That This is not a word for kings. It was, it was the word magi. It was a group of religious leaders from Persia. Thirdly, we think that they were from Asia. We three kings of Orient are. Well, they were from the east, but not that far east. They were actually over in modern-day Iraq, Iran area, the Babylonian area, which were, as we'll see in a moment, were probably ancestors of the Magi who were trained under Daniel. We also are said to know their names. Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. No one knows their names. That came out of the medieval times and got traction and stayed around. We also learn from medieval times or are taught that one of them was a black man from Africa. Nothing in the text that tells us that. And we're told that they visited baby Jesus at his birth. They didn't come at his birth, but they came, as we'll see in a moment, probably close to two years after his birth. And also, and we'll touch on this in a moment, that they followed an astronomical comet or nova to Bethlehem. A star, but that doesn't account for what it means in verse 2, his star, not a star in the heavens, but this was a unique event, a unique phenomenon that we'll speculate about in just a moment. The point Matthew is making is not to generate curiosity with these wise men, these magi, it is to generate curiosity with them about the child. We're not to be amazed and intrigued by them. We're supposed to be amazed and intrigued with them about Jesus. So let's follow along as Matthew unfolds this snapshot of what the song calls these three kings. They came saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, when we were in the east, And have come to worship him. That is so significant. They didn't come to see a spectacle. They came to worship him. Who deserves worship? Deity. Deity deserves worship. That's an announcement that they believed they were coming to worship God in flesh. They were here to worship the king of the Jews who was unlike any other king. Verse 2 is the key to understanding them. They came to worship. What were they looking for, though? The king of the Jews. Why were they looking for the king of the Jews? These were basically Babylonians. I think the best answer is these men were from the area of Babylonia, and the source of their search was the book of Daniel, and the group that they belonged to, the Magi, were trained by Daniel, who no doubt taught them of the coming hope and Messiah. Remember, in Daniel chapter 2, he was promoted to a class of wise men or the magi himself, and then he was their ruler, and no doubt pointed to the prophets about the coming king of Israel. So what is this star? What, What is this star? I think we might have a better clue about it than you might guess. When you look at the Old Testament, there's constantly this accent on God and light. God, in a manifestation of glory or illumination, remember the wilderness journey, he made himself known by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, light by night. When Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, there was the appearance of glory, fire, light, that was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. When Jesus was transfigured before Jesus and James and John, his face shone like the sun, the text tells us. His garments became as white as light, Matthew 17, 2 says. Then on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus was surrounded by, quote, a light from heaven, Acts 9, 3, which he later explained was brighter than the sun. In John's vision on the Isle of Patmos, he saw Christ And he said his face was like the sun shining in its full strength, Revelation 1.16 says. And in his vision of the new Jerusalem, the the future heavenly dwelling of all believers, he reports that the city, quote, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, Revelation 21.23. All to say this. We're not, I think, to speculate about about exactly what this is, but it makes most sense to me to say that this was a demonstration of the Shekinah glory of God. When they were in the east, over the horizon, they saw something that would draw them there. Now, they didn't just go there, by the way. If you remember how, how the desert worked between uh, uh, Iraq and Iran and, and uh, uh, Israel, even to this day, they had to go over what was called the Fertile Crescent. They couldn't go straight across the desert. They had to go way north and then down south. So they could get there from going north and south to Jerusalem, then to Bethlehem, and they could go back that way, or they could go south and around another way. Remember that alternate route. They saw his star, his star, something unique, not a star, his star, unique Shekinah glory that pulled them to the west. The key point is not the star was, the key point is the question, where is the child? Because we know who he is. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I think they were troubled because they knew when Herod was troubled, they were in trouble. Herod would respond to threats and respond to trouble by killing people. He killed at least one of his 10 wives because he thought she was unfaithful. He killed three of his own sons because he thought they were trying to overtake his throne. He was a wicked, wicked king. He heard this. He was troubled. Why? King Herod heard that these major important people from Babylon came over, stopping in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. He thought he was the king of the Jews. And we'll look at him in more detail in just a moment. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So look at the scene here. I mean, Here's this entourage of wise men. We don't know how it must, but but these were important people. They had a whole group of people, I'm sure, around them. They show up. They're looking for this child. Want to go worship him. They meet with Herod. And Herod pulls the scholars around. He says, okay, let me get all the, the smart people. Where was the Messiah supposed to be born? He inquired of them. Now, what I find interesting in this is Herod believed the Old Testament. He actually believed in its authenticity enough so that he was going to concoct a murderous scheme. There's such a conflict. Herod believed the word of God, but thought his power could trump it. They said to him, well, they answered, they knew, they knew Micah. In Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from Micah 5.2. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, had a conference with them, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now we know from doing the math in this passage, it was about two years ago. So they've been looking at this Shekinah glory glowing in the West for a couple of years and then finally something trips and they, they need to go see him. As we'll see later, it might have been the Lord telling them himself. Verse eight, he sent to them, them to Bethlehem and said, this is so disingenuous. Go and search carefully for the child and when you have found him, report to me so that I too can come and worship him. By the way, this seems to be indicating that they saw the light, but no one else did. Herod didn't know to go look in Bethlehem. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. Apparently it was just in the east. Now they find this Shekinah glory specifically And it's very specific. This is not a star up in the heavens. This is something they can see literally floating in the air. How do we know that? Keep reading. It went on before them until it came and stood, hovered over the place where the child was. If you go outside tonight and you look up at the stars, if you say, well, that's the star that's over my house, people would be suspicious. This was very specific. The Greek in verse 10, is almost as funny as the Greek in as the English. And when they saw the star, listen, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Does that sound like a a stack of adjectives? It is, and it's just exactly that way in the Greek. They were overwhelmed with joy and exceeding joy, and they were joyful about their joy. They were happy. And after coming not to the manger, not to a stable, Not to a barn after coming into the house. They were, Joseph and Mary at this point are living in a house in Bethlehem. Coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. This is what they came to do. And they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Jesus is, I don't know, 18. 20 months old. And they fall, these major players from the east fall down. And they're worshiping toddler. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I have to confess, my my grandson, we just had Christmas with them a few weeks ago, and we gave him a what I thought was a cool little present. Kim found this little thing that makes lots of noise which we were happy to send home with his parents. But what was interesting is is little Charlie was more interested in the the wrapping than the gift. Um, And I just wonder, you give an 18-month-old gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay. What was the significance of these three Magi gifts? Well, Lots been speculated. Gold is a precious metal used for jewelry, ornaments, currency, idols throughout human history because of its color and its shine. It was rare, its value. Frankincense is an expensive fragrance or perfume made from the trees of India and Arabia. Myrrh, a special costly perfume that was actually used as an embalming liquid, an embalming balm. And some speculate that that, that was picturing... The Lord's death. Maybe we're not told why, we're just told that these were very expensive, costly gifts these men came to give them. Why? Again, I don't know that we can say with absolute certainty, but my suspicion is we're going to see in just a moment that Joseph and Mary will run for the life of their child to Egypt, and they're going to stay there several months. That would have been a costly trip. It's not beyond reason to say that the Lord brought these men and these gifts to finance their refuge in Egypt to fulfill the prophecy that the Lord's Son would come out of Egypt. These Magi were not purchasing anything with these gifts. They were praising and honoring King Jesus. John Piper says, By giving to you, Jesus, what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these gifts, not these things. Verse 12, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is not hard to figure out because you had to go through Jerusalem on the way to Bethlehem And instead of going back through Jerusalem, back over the fertile crescent to Babylonia, they just went south. Herod was waiting every day. Are they coming back? Are they coming back? Have they found him? Why? Because he wanted to kill the threatening king. Which leads us to meet our second snapshot, the king from hell. The king from hell. And I mean that because I think Herod was operating under satanic attack and influence that would ultimately manifest itself in Judas, wanting to kill Jesus. Verses 14 to 20, we come back to Herod. It might interest you to know that we have more historical material on King Herod than any other historical figure of this time. We have more historical uh, data on him than Jesus, than Paul, than anyone Herod was an Idumean, that means half Jewish, half Arab, or an Edomite. And that he played that, he played his his, uh, uh, half-breededness very interesting. To Rome, he said, oh, I'm an Edomite, I'm just part Jewish. And to the Jews, he said, I'm your king, I'm the king of the Jews, which makes sense why he'd be so threatened by someone who was saying that the king of the Jews had been born He was incredibly successful. rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He was renovated, it made it beautiful. He was the one who single handedly created this city of Caesarea Mamertine up by the sea. He created a port because Israel had no ports on the coast. He creates this by sinking ships, ship hulls, and using them as a base to build a breakwater. He renovated Jerusalem, built a gorgeous palace for himself, constructed theaters um, and the like. He he was a, a Hellenistic monarch that was beloved by the Greeks and the Jews for what he did, but not for his character. He built seven great fortresses across the land, strong points that he could defend his administration. One of them was down by the Dead Sea called Masada. He kept the peace between Jerusalem and Rome and almost everything he touched was successful. He really did have the Midas touch. But he was wicked. His sin caught out to him, caught up to him. He died a horrific death. I read of his death physically and it was so grotesque and so graphic. I'm not even comfortable reading it from this pulpit. He was in such pain, gangrene on all of his limbs. He was in such pain that he tried to commit suicide, but his cousin prevented it. He died in 4 BC. Listen, we know historically, he died in 4 BC. Remember that. His kingdom then was divided up between Archelaus, his son, who would be over Judea and Samaria, the southern part of, of, uh, of Israel, Philip, and then Antipas, Herod Antipas. That should ring a bell. This is the Herod, his son up in the north in the Galilee area, who would sentence and execute John the Baptist. This was the Herod that Jesus spoke about and said, he's a fox, wicked. Herod the Great was ruthless. He was wicked. He had three of his own sons murdered and one of his wives, as I said. Anyone who was a threat to him was going to die in his own estimation. Verse 13 back to the magi when they had gone behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream by the way <laughs> joseph after this narrative must have been afraid to go to sleep he gets all of this information in dreams i'm sure he's laying in bed going I wonder what's going to happen tonight all of these things come to him in a dream he's he's there he's in his home in bethlehem the lord appears to joseph in a dream and said to him get up Take the child and his mother to, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for your baby, little Jesus, the child, to destroy him. This is what's interesting in verse 14. So Joseph got up that night, that dream, that evening, that house, that moment. He got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Matthew is making the point that this wasn't something they talked about and debated about for a few days or weeks. He has a dream. He wakes his family up. They run to Egypt. That's how urgent this was. He remained there, verse 15, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet in Hosea 11, 1, Numbers 24, 8. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod saw that he... (laughs) had been tricked by the Magi. How was he tricked? He had to deal with them. Go find the baby. Go find the king, and I'll come and worship with you. And I think they probably would have said, oh, oh okay. But if they were warned by God in a dream, this is a bad idea. Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became enraged and sent and killed massacred, slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under. Why is that important? According to the time which he determined from the Magi. They had seen the announcement of the birth of Jesus some two years before that when they were over in the Babylonia area. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the Prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. These are the Jewish babies. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31:15. You know I'm amazed how the Bible describes graphic realities. You look at this scene, you think of the death of Jesus. We look at all those physical uh, troubles and trials that the Lord went through, and we see the crucifixion, and we think of the pain, and we think of the nails, and we think of the crown, and we think of the blood. We look at this, and we hear of these little babies who were executed. They were, they were probably drugged from their mother's arms and stabbed with a sword given back to their mother, where they lay lifeless or they took their last breath with them. No details. This is left for us to know the gravity of this and we should. Horrific. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord (laughs) appeared in a dream to Joseph what dreams he had, and said, stop right there. We know Herod died in 4 BC. Since Jesus was born roughly two years before Herod ordered the massacre of the Bethlehem boys, it seems that Jesus was born probably in 5 or 6, in the spring of 5 or 6 BC. Also seems that Bethlehem's massacre was probably one of Herod's last acts. Joseph has this dream. The angel says, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. This is the good news. For those who sought the child's life are dead. It's interesting that it's plural, those. Herod had a whole posse, a whole cadre of people looking for this supposed king. Under Satan's influence, trying to stop the life of the Messiah. From the very beginning, Satan himself was trying to kill Jesus through these men, through Herod through his interaction with Jesus and the temptation, remember, go up on a high precipice and jump off. And then Judas turning him over to the authorities for execution on the cross. It's interesting that Satan wanted to happen what was the plan of God, which was the death of this child. Why is that a problem here? It wasn't his time. You open up John chapter 13, verse one, and it said, when the hour had come for him to glorify himself, Then he was ready for the cross. So even though it looks like Judas was a conspirator to get Jesus executed, Pilate says, basically, don't you know that I could let you go and I could free you? In John chapter 19, Jesus says, you would have no authority unless the Father had given it to him. Satan wanted to kill Jesus because I believe Satan had no expectation and no understanding of the resurrection that he would come back from the grave. A third snapshot of royalty, very simply, the king from heaven. I want to tell you, these last three verses are somewhat unremarkable, and they are unremarkable on purpose. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, came into the land of Israel, now, here's the problem. One of his sons, Herod's sons, Archelaus, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father and Herod. Remember, Egypt is just under Israel. So they're living in, in Egypt. They're coming up through Israel. They're coming into southern Israel. The first territory that they find is under Archelaus, who was over Judea. That was Herod's son. He was afraid to go there, he says. Well, wouldn't you be? They're trying to kill my boy. He's dead, but his son's here. He was obviously part of those who were looking for the death of Jesus, the death of the Christ child. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, another dream for our friend Joseph, he left for the regions north, 75 miles north in Nazareth, in Galilee. And he came and lived in a place called Nazareth. Why? Why? To fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. Sounds simple enough, right? But if you're careful and you look at all of these Old Testament quotes that we've been looking at in this this passage, you look over on the right and in the side of your Bible, in the margin, it tells you which Old Testament prophecy that's connected to, right? You can see what it's quoting. You don't find that at this juncture, at this passage. Why? Why? Because there is no text that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Full stop, hit the brakes. Matthew informs us Jesus was moved to Nazareth to live in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. But what do we do with the fact that no such Old Testament prophecy or text tells us this? Did Matthew make a mistake? Was he wrong? Is the word of God undermined? No, 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 no. Notice that Matthew did not quote any particular Old Testament prophet, singular. He did not say that one of the prophets shared this or said this, stated this. Instead, he tells us that the Old Testament prophets, plural, predicted that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, consequently, we got to be careful not to expect to find any given verse since he just said, the prophets. Some have suggested that we solve this problem in different ways. Some have said, "Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. So, uh, the, the, there's a Nazarite vow in uh, the Old Testament uh, in number six two, and maybe since Jesus fulfilled the law, that he had to be a Nazarite. Except Nazarite and Nazarene are different words, and Jesus never took a Nazarite vow, so that's probably not the way to solve that." Others point to the fact that Nazareth comes from the basic word netzer in the the Hebrew, which means branch. And they suggest, well, many prophets spoke of the Messiah as the branch. But it's a different word, so it's not that either. Here's what I think we need to think about. The city of Nazareth, historically, where Jesus lived, where Jesus grew up, was a despised place we would call it the other side of the tracks. How do we know that? Remember in John 1, 46 where Nathaniel said, "The Messiah is from Nazareth." Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. In this sense, Nazarene was a term of derision, appropriate to the Messiah who the prophets predicted would be despised and forsaken of men, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22:6, 6, Daniel 9, 6, Zechariah 12, 10, all say the Messiah would be despised and looked down upon. Nazareth was despised and looked down upon. In fact, I think that when they said Jesus the Nazarene, that was a term of derision. Peter picks that up and calls him Jesus the Nazarene in his first sermon and says, yeah, that's right. All to say this was a demonstration of the prophetical idea that the Messiah would be humble, despised, forsaken. Magi, big deal. Cadre, lots of people coming with them. Herod, big deal, self-imposing, very successful. King Jesus, obscure. In a despised place. And outside of one situation we know when he was 12 years old outside of that we know virtually nothing about his upbringing and his life before he was three decades old i think that matthew's just saying nazarene is a synonym for someone despised and detested which is exactly what the prophet said the messiah would expect Three views of these royalty categories, these supposed kings from the east, King Herod, wicked King Herod over Israel, and the king of the Jews, the true king, who was born in relative obscurity, had to run for his life through his parents' wisdom and being tipped off by the Lord, and then comes back to live in relative obscurity in Nazareth, which is in the north, just a few miles from Sea of Galilee where almost all of his ministry, two-thirds of his ministry would take place. God's provision of making sure that they had the finances to run to Egypt, God's provision to make sure that they had safety in Nazareth, which some people think had no more than 500 Occupants. And that's where Jesus would grow up. It does remind us, though, this little town of Nazareth is where Jesus would be castigated for the rest of his life because that's the area they he came from. And that's the area where everyone thought he was born of immorality. And he lived with a very small community, probably not even the size of our church, where everyone knew everything about everyone. And the Lord put him there as an incubator for his preparation for his ministry. We should be amazed at the wisdom of God. It is counterintuitive. It is non-conventional. It is unexpected. It is otherworldly. We should marvel at the humility of our Savior. I've told you that I learned a lesson from a mentor of mine, very important, that you're never more like God than when you're humble. Philippians 2 said, he humbled himself, taking on the nature, the form of man, executed on the cross. The king of the world, the king of the Jews, the Savior of our souls, didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He came humbly. And he calls us to humble ourselves before him and before each other. And I think we learn an incredible lesson from these wise men. Unlike Herod, they genuinely came to worship the king of the Jews. We just sang a little while ago, Oh, worship Christ, the newborn King. And this week, you have such a sweet invitation from the Lord to think deeply about Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And I would encourage you and beg you take the invitation that the Lord in our culture and our society has given us to think deeply and rightly and biblically about the coming of our Savior. What a gift this week is. I pray that you'll understand His worth because that's what generates our worship. What a God who would come like this. What a God who would protect and preserve His Son. What a wicked world we live in where innocents are slain. And yet we have a God who is good and who is just. And will make all wrongs right in his own way, in his own time, for his own glory, and we can trust him. Let me pray. Father, I just beg that all of us know you and that we can worship you like these magi, like these wise men. We would recognize your value, your worth, your identity and fall down in worship. The shepherds were amazed. The magi were amazed. His parents were amazed. Oh, Father, make us amazed at the Lord Jesus because he truly is amazing. Make this week special as we give him worship. And rejoice exceedingly with great joy at who he is and that he's come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.